Well, this morning I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. There we'll read the opening 11 verses. This is the word of the living God. Let us hear with faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the no moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The grass withers, the flower falls to the earth, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would have ready hearts to receive it, that it wouldn't simply go in our ears and pass through, but penetrate to our souls and transform our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we would be more like the Lord Jesus, that we would be true sons. We thank you that we can be adopted into your family, and that we can look to our older brother, the one who will inherit all things and has promised that we will be co-heirs with him if we endure. We thank you that he did endure, that he didn't give up, that he did exactly what you required of him, Father, and for that we give you praise. We ask now that we would hear the voice of the living God speaking to us, and that we would be moved by your voice, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to be changed from the inside out, that we would be prepared to do what your word tells us, to set aside every sin and every weight and every encumbrance, that we might indeed run the race with endurance. And so give us strength to do that even now. Through Jesus Christ alone we pray. Amen. We look at the last few weeks at discipleship, which is a much happier term than discipline, but they certainly are related words. And I encouraged you over the last 
couple of weeks to read through a gospel and see how it was that Jesus trained his disciples. How did he teach those who were his followers? What were some of his methods and the way that he did this? And we're going to look at that together uh, this morning, focusing our attention mostly on verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 12. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline doesn't seem pleasant. Nobody likes to be corrected. Nobody likes to be told where they've done something wrong. We all like to be praised. We like to be patted on the back. We like to be built up. But there are times when it's necessary for there to be correction. This chapter opens with the idea of putting aside our sin because of those who are watching us. And that cloud of witnesses has received a lot of uh, speculation. Who exactly is the cloud of witnesses? Is it the church? Is it the, the invisible church? The whole church? Is it the angelic host? Is it all these together? I mean, there's, there's no answer that's really uh, 100% satisfying to everyone. What we need to realize, though, is that we, we're not alone. That's, that's the point here. The point here is that we're not alone. Even, even in this life, there are times we feel like we're all alone, and we're not. And sometimes we feel like we're being watched, and we are. And God is watching over us. He's watching not only what we do, but what we think, what's in our hearts, what's, what's motivating us. We can't hide our, our motivations from God. A few moments ago, we read the, the t- parable of the, of the self-righteous Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. Now, you don't have to look into his heart. You just had to listen to his words. You just had to look at his posture. You, go, you, know, you know what's going on there. You understand something of that. But that's, not everyone is that easy to read. Not every situation is that uh, readily discerned. We need to be careful. And I hope that as we go through this together, we'll learn to be careful and learn to look more into our own hearts and stop trying to read the hearts of others. We need to set aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely and run with endurance. I'm not, a, I'm not an athlete. I don't have the stamina. I don't have the stick-to-itness of, of athletes. You watch uh, these elite athletes in the Olympics and other places, and you see how much time they spend training, how much their, their lives are consumed with the goal of, of being the best in the world at whatever their particular uh, sport may be. You don't, you don't get to the, to the Olympics, at least in, in, in today's world, just by being the, the son of an aristocrat. You know, back in the last century, that might have happened, uh, but this, this time of of history, if you want to be in the Olympics and you want to win a gold medal, you're going to have to work for it. And we should be, as Christians, realizing that we're in a, we're in a spiritual Olympics, and there's not just one place on the podium for a gold medal winner. All of us are going to receive from God a crown of righteousness. Now, whether that's, I mean, I think it's metaphoric. I don't think we're actually going to be sitting around with, you know, gold pieces on our heads. Uh, but, but it's a picture that we're to, we're to be uh, excited by. You know, if, if somebody can, can, can want that one moment of fame where they stand on the, on the metal podium and they get a, a gold medal hung around their neck, even if the whole world's watching, it's nothing in comparison with the whole universe watching as you enter into glory. 
And God himself receives you because of his son, Jesus Christ. Because you have endured. Not because you're the, the best person in the world. Not because you're the worst person in the world either. But you're one of God's people. And you've been clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. And you've been reformed in his likeness. And you've been trained by him. Now we get lazy and we give up at times. But the, the word is given to inspire us, to encourage us. And so we, we're told that we're to run the, the race that's set before us. And I thought about that a lot of times. You know, when you have a race, you have a, you have a definite course set out. And if you deviate from the course, you're disqualified. But here's the uniqueness of the race of the Christian faith. And that is that each of us has our own course. They all have the same finish line, but they have a different path. Each of us has been called by God to live a certain life, to endure certain things. And they're not the same as your neighbor. They may not even be the same as your spouse. But all of us must run the course, the race that is set before us. And there's a general sense to it, but there's also a very specific sense. And I want you to think about that. But all together, we're looking at that finish line, which is the same for all of us. We're looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who ran his course. He had his own very unique life, and he accomplished things in his life that no one else could do because he came to do the Father's will. Because he came and, and he endured. He, he was disciplined. He was punished unjustly. But he didn't think about the, the shame. Too often we're worried about our honor. Jesus didn't worry about his honor while he was on earth. He didn't, he didn't think, well, this is, this is undignified. How, I, can't, I can't do this. This is beneath me. No, he, he endured the cross despising the shame. He didn't think anything of, of what he was suffering himself. And now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's been, he's been elevated. And I was saying to you earlier, we all have that expectation that we're going to, we're going to get the prize. We're going to be given that, that crown of righteousness, a, a medal that won't fade away and be lost. We still remember some of the great heroes of past Olympics and the, the feats they achieved. But at the end of the day, they're not going to be remembered. The, the most unrecognizable believer has an identity that is far greater than the world's mightiest, most important celebrity. And we need to remember that. So we must not grow weary as we, as we follow Jesus. And we realize it's not going to be pleasant. There are going to be times when, when we hear things we, we don't want to hear. Now I said to you, read through the Gospels, and you'll see how Jesus trained his disciples, the kinds of things that he said. So we're going to go through them. I don't know whether you had read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I don't know if anybody actually did that, but I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, and I won't embarrass you, but I tried to do it myself several times over the past few weeks, and I want to just pick some, some passages from Matthew, from Mark, from Luke, and from John, and we see how Jesus interacts with his disciples, how he teaches them, what is his methodology. 
And I want to start in Matthew chapter 16, which we looked at last time. Or last time? Yeah, it was last time. <laughs> when, when, when the people confess, that, or when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And in that chapter, which I remind you is not a biblical unit, it's, we've, we've made it ourselves to help us find the place, but as it begins, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are testing Jesus. They're, they don't believe him. They want to find fault with him. We know, we know this. You've, you've read the Gospels enough. You know this. They're, they're not on his side. They, they come and they say, please show us a sign from heaven. And there are times when they can be polite. There's times when they can be snarky and rude. But they, they just say, give us a, a sign from heaven. And Jesus says to them this. When it's evening, you say it will be fine air weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and departed. And what is Jesus doing here? He's saying, listen, you guys have common sense. You, you know how the world operates. You look out at night and you see a red sky and you go, oh, red sky at night. It's going to be a nice day tomorrow. You get up in the morning and the sky's red. You go, oh, bad day coming. Now, that's not 100% accurate. We know that. But, but it's something that, I mean, I was told that as a child. Jesus is saying, you know this. You're aware of this. You can, you can tell the weather. Good for you. What about the times? What about the times we're living in? What about what's really important right now? That's what he says to them. What's, what's important right now? And they, you can't interpret what's, what's really important. And, and then, this is Jesus, meek and mild, lowly and humble of heart. You, evil and adulterous generation. You want a sign? Okay, <laughs> I'll give you a sign. It's a sign of Jonah. Isn't it interesting how God does that? <laughs> He does it with, with Moses as well. Moses is on the mountain, the burning bush. God says to him, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, I, w- I want a sign. Give me a sign. God says, okay, after you've done it, you'll come back and worship me on this mountain. You know, <laughs> no, you do what you're told, Moses, and then I'll confirm it. And it's not just to Moses he says that, but he says it here to a Wicked and adulterous generation. They're evil. They're the brood of vipers. Jesus will often use very strong language in his teaching. He says, no sign is going to be given you except the sign of Jonah. Now, they understood what that meant, I'm sure. Um, maybe they thought that you know, Jesus was going to be swallowed by a great fish. I don't know. What they, <clears throat> but they understood the idea of death and resurrection. And Jesus is telling them, you know the word of God, but you don't want to accept it. You've twisted it. After Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, you know, that, that wonderful experience. And you think about the irony of this. After Peter says, you are the Christ, son of, and, Peter, and, and, and Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on, on this confession. I'm going to build the church. Hell itself will not be able to withstand the, the gospel preaching. And immediately afterwards, he tells them, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. 
He, he tells them how the sign of Jonah is going to be actually accomplished. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to rise again. And what does Peter do? You all know what Peter does. No, 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 Jesus, no, no. This could never happen to you. This could never be. Now Jesus is talking to Peter who moments before he had praised. Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I think that's the sternest rebuke we hear Jesus giving to any of his disciples. It's, it's powerful. Is Jesus overdoing it? Is this hyperbole? Is he, is he simply just trying to insult Peter? No, he's pointing out to Peter that Peter has taken his eyes off the prize. He is not looking to run the race with endurance. He wants a short, shortcut. He wants to, he wants to circumvent what, what the pain that comes when we are properly disciplined. And Jesus tells him, that's, that's not God's plan, Peter. It's man's plan. Man wants the easy way out. We don't naturally like discipline. It is unpleasant. But it's pleasing to God. And as we grow in Christ-likeness, the concept of discipline and its practice should become more sweet in our experience. Even when people say things to us that we find maybe offensive. Look at Jesus. Look how Jesus speaks to his disciples. He speaks very sternly at times because it was necessary. He tells his disciples how to behave and how to think. In chapter 18 of Matthew's Gospel, the disciples are having an argument. As the chapter begins, they're having an argument about which of them is the greatest in the kingdom. I don't know if they did this more than once. We have different accounts of it. It's not quite sure how they all fit together, what happened more than once. But they, they like to argue about this, or who would sit at Jesus' right hand in the kingdom of, of heaven. You know, they, they, they'd argue about our, their, their place in, in the divine um, presence. It's... it's it's very strange to me. But they want to know, who's, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And, and Matthew 18, verse 2, Jesus calls to himself a little child, and he puts them in the midst of them, and he says, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you might say, oh, I've read that lots of times, and I've really even thought about it. Okay, maybe, maybe we could try and put it in more, more modern terms. You're, you know, not you, but you're watching two of your coworkers, and they're, and they're arguing about, you know, who's the best employee. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a school group touring your workplace. It's kindergarten class. <laughs> and the, the boss Here's these two arguing, and they're, they're going, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the right-hand man. Oh, I'm the right-hand man. And, and, and the boss says, okay. <laughs> he pulls out one of the kindergartners, and he, and he stands him up before these two burly workmen, and he says, now, you have to be like this. This is how you, this is, this is how you, you be the best employee. I brought this child, and 
He's, he's not arguing. He's not fighting. He's not, he's not kicking up a fuss. He's not making a fool of himself. Now, how do you think those two employees are going to feel when they're compared to a child? How are they, how are they going to feel about that? Are they, are they going to go, well, that's cool? Or are they going to be insulted? I suspect a lot of people would be insulted. It's hard to say what the disciples thought exactly at this time because we're not told. But Jesus basically cuts them down to size. He puts them in their place. He says, you're arguing about who's most important? I'll show you who's most important. This kid's most important. It's a hard lesson to learn. See, they were anything but humble. They were anything but humble. I'm, I'm more important. No, no, I'm more important. Again, you, just, you can just see them bickering about this. Who's the most important? Jesus says, it's the one who humbles himself. Humility has been underrated in human history. In ancient worlds, it was thought, you know, unmanly. You had, to be, you had to be boasting, you had to be puffed up, you had to be, you know, putting yourself forward all the time. It hasn't changed much, has it? We're still that way. Let's go on the internet. Shameless self-promotion. It's not the place for Christians. It's not the practice for Christians. We're not to be putting ourselves forward. We're to be humbling ourselves and become childlike, trusting in the Savior, ready to hear his voice, ready to go where he puts us. See, the... Jesus just takes this child and picks him up. In one of the accounts, he puts him on his lap. This is not a big child. <laughs> Jesus is saying, this is, this is the way you need to respond to me if you're going to be great in my kingdom. In Mark's gospel, chapter 6, Jesus again, sends out his disciples. He sends the 12 of them out, two by two, and he gave them authority. He told them not to take anything with them. And he said, I'm going to give you authority to cast out demons, to heal the anointed, uh, the sick by anointing them with oil. This is what I'm sending you out to do. And when they come back, they're boasting about themselves. They're self-satisfied. They think they've done this in their own strength. And Jesus has to remind them that he's the one who's given them this power. He's the one who's, who's working in them. They listen. And they receive from Jesus all that they need. Jesus puts aside the, the commandments I'm sorry, he puts aside the commandments of man and informs them again the necessity of following the commandments of God. Also in Mark chapter 9, there's the same argument <clears throat> about who is greatest. And Jesus, again, has to rebuke them with a little child. Whether it's the same incident or not, we're not, we're not exactly sure. But Jesus is, again, correcting his disciples for their waywardness, for their wrong thinking. We have to be ready to hear Jesus' instruction. We have to be ready to hear him correct us when we go the wrong way, when we don't listen to what he has to say. In Luke's gospel, we have a singular event. Luke alone records for us when Jesus goes to the home of Martha and Mary 
He enters the village and Martha welcomes him into her house. She has a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Martha's very practical. Well, there's a crowd, people being, entered, people being uh, instructed. It's necessary to show them hospitality to make sure they get something to eat. And uh, as she is so caught up with that, she doesn't have time to listen to what Jesus is saying. She doesn't see the importance of, of what Jesus is saying. But Mary does. The Lord answers her saying, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but only one but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. Again, you've, you've heard that before, but think about what it actually means. What is Jesus actually doing when he, when he speaks to Martha with those words? He's telling her that she's got her priorities wrong. Jesus is not saying, don't show hospitality, but he's saying at this point in time, your priorities are wrong, Martha. You should be not trying to take Mary away from what she's chosen, but be glad for her. Be happy that, that she's chosen the good portion. She's doing what's appropriate for the time. Jesus always wants us to do what's appropriate for the time. We started out saying how Jesus says to the Pharisees, you, you know how to interpret the weather, but you don't know how to interpret the time. What's the right thing to do here and now? In this instance, the right thing to do in Martha's house is to sit down and listen to Jesus. We can worry about the hors d'oeuvres later. We can worry about the hospitality together in a while. But right now, it's time to listen to Jesus. You know, elsewhere, the Pharisees will come and complain. Jesus, your, your disciples don't fast. We fast. We teach our disciples to fast. John teaches his disciples they fast. And what does Jesus say to them? It's inappropriate. Do the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? No, you feast. It's, it's time to celebrate. But a time for fasting will come. Jesus corrects wayward thinking. He does it politely. But he does it unflinchingly as well. And I think that's important for us to see. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh... You know, this, this might not be well received. It might, you, might, you might be offended by, by this. No, he's, he's pointing out to them necessity of thinking rightly all the time. I have to keep an eye on the time. I don't know if I'm going to get through all these. I'll turn to, to John's Gospel. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you see the, were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. 
the words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I think if Jesus was around today and the church growth people were talking to him, they would, they would give him a lot of good advice. You know, how you can't say things like this to people because they don't want to hear it. You know, you, you, you cut down the size of your congregation. You've, you've told them something that, that didn't build up the church. Really? This is a hard saying. Jesus had other hard sayings. He told them about marriage and divorce. They didn't like that either. Oh, it's better that no one get married than if that's the way it is. He talked to them about wealth, and they didn't like that either. He gave them the illustration that's known even beyond the bounds of the church, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus has the words of life, and he tells them, what are you going to think? You, you, you're having a hard time with what I'm telling you now? You're, you are going to see the Son of Man ascend into glory and sit at the Father's right hand. Hebrews chapter 12. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus. Well, these people said, no, we're not going to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're out of here. This, this isn't what we wanted. This isn't, this isn't the kind of religion we signed up for. So they leave. In John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and his detractors are there as well. He tells them that the truth will set them free. The scribes and Pharisees begin to announce that they've never been enslaved. Jesus tells them they are slaves and he asks them why they wanted to try and kill him, and they are incensed at that as well. Verse 40, But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. They want to be Abraham's children, but they don't want to share Abraham's faith. They don't want to act like Abraham did. He points them out to the children of the devil, the liar, who's been a liar from the beginning. He speaks out of his own character, Jesus says in verse 44. He is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says, if I was to agree with you, I'd be a liar just like you are. We know that there is no lie in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, finally... In John chapter 21, we have that interesting passage that concludes the book. When Jesus restores Peter after his triple defection on the night of his betrayal, when he denied three times that he knew Jesus. Now, I've said before, I, th- I think that Jesus when he looked across the courtyard and saw Peter after the third denial, and Peter recognized and realized what he had done. Jesus looked at him. I don't think it was a sneer. I don't think it was a shaking his head, I told you so kind of look. 
But Peter was broken. His heart was broken by his sin, and he went out and he wept bitterly. But Jesus still needed to correct him. He didn't just need to show him compassion and kindness. He needed to correct him, and he needed to put Peter back in the right place. And so he asks him three times, do you love me? And Peter, we're told, is grieved because Jesus asked him the third time. Peter's feelings were were hurt by Jesus' words. I think this is such an important thing for us to, to think about. Sometimes we're hurt by other people's words to us. We need to realize, why are we hurt? Should we be hurt? We need to understand the times. Are these words true? Or are they just mean? Are they just meant to hurt? Or are they meant to heal? There's a whole difference between a mugger with a knife and a surgeon with a scalpel. They both might cut into you, but they have totally different motives and totally different goals, what they're trying to achieve. We can do the same with our tongues. James warns us that the tongue is set on fire by hell. It's a world of evil. But we can use our tongues to help people or to hurt people. Sometimes in helping them, we have to cause them some pain, even as Jesus did with Peter. Peter was grieved, but he was helped. He was restored. He was set on the path of of healing. But he wasn't completely sanctified. Not at this moment anyway. Because Jesus says, follow me. And immediately Peter does. That's great. You know, that's good. Jesus says, follow me. And Peter's right there behind him. But then what happens? Peter looks and sees the beloved disciple also following. And he says, "Uh, Lord, (laughs) what about him? What about this man? (laughs) And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. That's kind of a cutting response, isn't it? I mean, think about it in today's vocabulary. You know? Here's Peter, and he's, he's following Jesus, and he looks and he says, he sees one of his fellow disciples. I mean, it's a fellow disciple. One who's been designated apostle, just like Peter. You know, Peter's just showing some, some concern for him. And Jesus flatly tells him to mind his own business. That it's not his concern. That he needs to run the race that's set before him. And he's given him some details about what that race is going to entail. Peter needs to be corrected. And we need to be corrected and learn from Peter's example. That we follow Jesus ourselves and not worry about how others are following Jesus or what plans Jesus has for other people. That's a hard thing. We we, we like to call it, you know, concern. You know, looking out for others. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be my brother's keeper, but we have to be careful that we don't let genuine concern and care for others slip into meddling. Slip into trying to control other people's lives and know what they're doing and why they're doing it. Jesus teaches plain lessons to his disciples. Those lessons continue down to today. And we need to learn them. And we need to get over ourselves so that we can look more to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith.
Jesus shed his blood for our sins. He, he endured to the end. The writer to the Hebrews says, you, you haven't resisted sin to the point of shedding your blood. Now, there have been Christians that have in the past. We're not likely to be such Christians, but the point is still there. It remains the same. We are to be ready to give up everything, even life itself, if necessary, to be faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And hear his correction. It doesn't end here. It just begins. When you get on the path of discipleship and we walk, as Jesus calls us to walk, in his own footsteps. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus came into this world and gave himself for sinners to reconcile us to you, and that by his blood we have been cleansed. We pray now, Father, that we would hear our Savior speaking to us, that we would learn the lessons that are before us, that we'd set aside our own egos, our own emotions, our own desires, that every aspect of our being would be made more like the Lord Jesus, and that we would subordinate even our best thoughts to him whose thoughts were entirely true, whose words were righteous, and who always did what was pleasing to you. Help us to become more pleasing in your sight through the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.